Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Yes, we are still, of course, taping a knot in the radio studio at CIUT 89.5 FM, uh, but continuing on and love to hear from you, by the way, uh, who are listeners to the show, please, you know, send your comments on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, any old way you can get them to me. I love to hear from you. This show will be aired, of course, on the radio, but it will also find its way to SoundCloud and iTunes, so you can pick it up there on an ongoing basis. Today is our faith panel. I always look forward to this time every month. And our usual correspondents are here, Fizamir and Annie Batan in the second part of the show. Uh, so Fiza, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Thanks, nice to see you and speak with you, Jerry. So we are entering a holy time in uh, the Muslim calendar. Tell us about it. Yes, well, today is the first day of Ramadan. And uh, so we will be fasting for 30 days and it is really um, a time of renewal for me, like my favorite time of the year, um, because we are at the mosque more often, we get to connect with community more often and, and food is not like central to your life. And it's obviously the fasting is just one aspect of it. The point of it is to um, sort of disavow yourself of worldly needs as much as you can and think more about the spiritual. So that's been really great. And, we, and and to be honest, this year I was thinking about Ramadan in January. I was thinking, I can't wait till Ramadan. I just felt like I needed it. And it comes exactly at the time where I feel like um, really burnt out and really feel like I, I need to reconnect um, internally. And uh, yeah, and then in April, when we started to learn that, well, end of March, that we might not have communal Ramadans and that there may not be no gathering at the mosques, there are no evening prayers together. <laughs> um, yeah, that was pretty heartbreaking. So I think this week in, and leading up to um, this week has been kind of bittersweet for people. Um, but we do, you know, I guess we try to create, we're gonna try and create some kind of online community. So I have seen that mosques are going to be running more talks, which is nice. So in some ways I won't just be attending my mosque, I'll be able to sort of virtually tune in to anybody you know, all throughout the day if I wanted to. Um, but yeah, of course, it doesn't replace being there. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's what we're dealing with now. But I've also seen some very interesting posts about how it's a time also for us to think of who doesn't have access to the mosque on, a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on the day-to-day. Um, not just people with disabilities, but LGBTQ Muslims who are often never welcomed into mosques, who are often alone during COVID and that the tables have turned a bit and it's something for us to reflect on and I hope people will. Um, so it's a, it's a learning moment for sure as well. But, you know, I think um, for elderly, it's very sad. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people are isolated and especially if they live alone, I know that this time of year is so important to, to gather. Um, so that the, definitely people are gonna be struggling, that's for sure. Yeah. So are you going to be doing online forums, sort of Zoom forums with people um, in well, the evenings or how, how, what will that look like? 
Well, we decided as a family, we will try to do some stuff by ourselves. If we want to do something together, we will. If we feel like we want to just be reflective in our own rooms, everyone just sort of, um, you know, disperse after we eat and pray. And maybe we'll take some time for ourselves to do that. But our imam is doing um, evening sessions every night for just a half an hour before opening fast. There has been discussion because as you know, we pray together, you know, we do do uh, communal prayer together. So there's been some conversation in the last three weeks about whether that could be done virtually. So even if someone is doing a live stream, could we join them at home? And I think the majority opinion was that, no, that's not really recommended. We don't want that to be kind of a precedent that's set and, and follows people into the future of just, okay, I'll just stay home and pray with you. Um, so I think that that's not going to happen. So, um, and I understand the rationale, but it is still sad because I, you know, we'd love to hear the beautiful recitation of the Quran and we're not all skilled with that. So being able to listen to that in the month of Ramadan is really special. Uh, so we won't have that. So we will be praying on our own and they're, and they're, you know, they're, they're not obligatory prayers. They're, they're just extra, whatever you feel you need to do to reconnect with God. And then there's also the point that it's also nice to have sort of an unmediated connection that you have your solitude and you really sort of get into your own thoughts and, and, and connect on your own. And there's value in that. Um, and that we shouldn't always be reliant on others who we deem to be uh, somehow more spiritually connected or more knowledgeable in the faith to be our, 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 our um, uh, I don't know, conduit. So, so there's, there's a plus side, but yeah, we, as a family, we're going to do something different. I guess people are going to do their own things. I, I haven't, I don't have any formal zoom meetings planned. Um, but I think we, it may happen. We may have friends that are just like, let's just connect tonight and like, you know, just, uh, touch base. Yeah. Now you're also a parent, Fiza, and, uh, in, in, uh, speaking to Annie in the second half, uh, we spoke, uh, we're going to be speaking about being a parent for her. What's that like? Because you now, everybody's at home more or less. Yeah. I mean, my children are older, so my youngest is 12. So I don't have a lot of, um, uh, you know, I'm not too concerned. He, I'm fortunate that he logs onto his own school page. He does his own work. He submits it also because he's not allowed to touch his PS4 until he does. So he gets that done. Um, so yeah, everyone's kind of, uh, doing their own work. My kids are, the other two are, are young adults. So it's, it's not as, it's, it's nice to have them home. It's nice to have sort of daily chats and if they're thinking about something, they kind of bring it to the whole family. And we, we didn't even have that at dinner time, Right. So we were on a schedule where we, none of us even had dinner together this term. Like we're all, we're all in school right now. <laughs> so we all had different schedules. So it is nice to be um, together. And a plus side to Ramadan. I mean, one of the big challenges of, of being home is that my kitchen is a mess all the time. People are eating all the time <laughs> and preparing like full meals whenever they want. And I just feel like, you know, one of us will tidy up and in 10 minutes it's a mess again. So with Ramadan, our kitchen will be clean. <laughs> we, will yeah. all have, we will all have meals together. <laughs> um, so, so that's really nice. Yeah. Yeah, I'm finding um, with, uh, you know, adult children uh, kicking around these days that uh, one of them is, has designated herself the housekeeper. So the house has never been cleaner. She's like oh, organizing nice. everything. And uh, uh, my son works outside the house, but, um, you know, he's the IT specialist. So they've, they've developed their usefulness. And I think right. all parents are kind of going through this as like, you know, what are the kids doing? Um, on a less happy topic, I really wanted to talk. Um, I'm talking to Annie about the Jewish traditions around death 
uh, and normal Jewish traditions around death, not in pandemic times, and then what that looks like now. So I want to talk to you about the same, same reality. First of all, um, because a lot of people out there don't know what it looks like in the Muslim tradition uh, when someone dies, what happens, and perhaps you could talk us through that. What, what is the general practice um, that happens when someone dies in your community? Yeah. Well, it, it is always um, preferred that the, the burial happens as soon as possible. So um, unless there's a real need for an autopsy or something that prolongs the burial, um, you know, of course that's allowed, but the preference is even within a day or two, it's nice to just have the whole event, to have the whole prayer, the communal prayer for that as well. And usually what happens is there's uh, either volunteers or people at the mosque who are assigned to do this that have a ritual bathing of the body. So the body's cleansed in a ritualistic way and um, shrouded, we're just wrapped in a simple shroud. I guess in um, non-Western countries, we're not allowed to bury people directly into the ground. There has to be um, some sort of box or structure. So for that reason in Canada, there is a, there's just a plain wooden box um, that's made and the person is placed in that uh, along with their burial shroud. And they're wrapped in the burial shroud. And that happens within 24 hours? or um, Yeah, they, they try their best. Yeah, they try their best. Or 48. Right. Most of the time, it's usually 48. Um, and I know my mother used to volunteer for women who had passed away. She would go and, and she would perform that. And I had always thought that maybe I should start doing that. You know, it's just, it's something that grounded her and that she just felt she was um, in service. Um, but I just never, I was talking to my sisters about it recently and said, you know, remember mom used to do this, should we do that? And they were always like, why do, why do you want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> and I guess when I thought about it, I, I said, I, I don't know if I'm emotionally ready, but I think it's a beautiful thing to do for people in your community. Um, so my mom used to do that. So they're not, the, the point is that they're not all professionals. They're, they're people who volunteer. They will get up when it's needed and go. Um, so that, that's really beautiful. And so is the body in a funeral home or is it in the mosque or where is the body at that point? Is it home? Yeah. So uh, a lot of the larger mosques are equipped with, um, washing facilities, so they will be able to do it in the mosque, but I know smaller ones may opt to pay a funeral home. Uh, for either they, they have access to it and they're able to participate. Um, or I'm not sure if the funeral home does it themselves. Yeah. So mm -hmm. there's a bit of both. Um, and then what would be done is uh, it would be up to the family, but sometimes the, the body is brought out during prayer. So there's usually a call out and everybody tells everybody that this person has passed away. Um, and whoever can make it that day, uh, they, they go to the mosque and there's a prayer called Janaza. And we all pray together. There's a few words about the deceased and the Imam leads um, a short prayer for that person. And, um, and again, it all happens pretty quickly. So I think under COVID, so I was reading, I, I haven't experienced it myself. I haven't, um, I know that actually this week, somebody I know, somebody my mother knows passed away, an elderly man. I don't know if it was related to COVID, but I was reading about what, what, what are people doing? And I think right now um, they are just sort of following what, what provincial rules there are, federal or provincial rules around this. And I believe that the ritual um, bath is still allowed to happen. Um, with the right precautions, just as a nurse or a doctor mm -hmm. would uh, make sure they're covered up, um, that is still allowed to happen uh, in a small group, one or two, it, it usually takes one or two people to do it anyway. <clears throat> and then for funerals, uh, for the actual prayer, um, they are so far not necessarily held in the mosque, they may be done on site, 
but it's it's recommended it just be one or two and i think the provincial recommendation now is under five people mm -hmm. can gather but then they're also spread apart so i believe right. that that's probably what's happening so i haven't witnessed this or seen it myself but that's my assumption based on and, and it is sad it's sad because it's such a it's a time where you know even if it's someone that i knew distantly if i can get that day off i will go to the mosque for two hours and just make sure i'm there for them um so it is sad to think that there are people passing away without those prayers however um prayers can also be done in absentia and there's a recommendation that if you cannot attend that you continue to offer prayers for that person um so there are there's precedents for that having been done as well and also it's interesting that i was i was reading up on how people who actually die of plagues or you know illnesses like this um their death is considered martyrdom and there are a few situations where their death is good. Also childbirth, dying in childbirth is considered martyrdom. So uh, that was also new to me. So I was just sort of looking this up. So I guess that's, that brings a bit of peace of mind to people who feel that their family members might be missing out on everybody's prayers that day. Um, but I believe that's what's been happening. Is cremation allowed in the Islamic tradition? No. So for the most part, um, it, yeah, we, we, it is, it's not allowed. It's prohibited. I also know so far there's, uh, there are some Muslim communities that are living in lands where cremation is the um, dominant practice. And um, I think they're trying to petition for the government to not have that happened. So there are some contentious places, but for the most part, um, there's no pressure here to, to abide by that. Even if, even if we were in a situation where there was a plague, um, I believe that the, the hospital or wherever, wherever that person died would be sealed, the bag, you know, they would be sealed in a bag. And in that case, the ritual bathing would not happen, um, but it wouldn't require cremation the person could be buried. So, so far that hasn't been an issue. Yeah. Right. And is, is there, uh, is some traditions, uh, some faith traditions have prayers uh, that happen at the anniversary of the death, for example, or at other times? Is there other times that that person is remembered uh, other than at the uh, moment of death and shortly thereafter? In uh, not in a formal way. Right. No, I, I mean, I think anniversaries, people do gather and uh, they do pray for them. But yeah, not, not formally. And, and there's also an emphasis on the fact that we may not even, even in a normal situation, we can't always visit people's graveyards, right? They may be overseas, they may be too far. And not to, not to believe that, you know, not being there is a barrier to prayer or your prayers being heard. And we do believe that there is life after death and that death is a waiting place. So your prayers are heard by that person. And that we believe that there's a, a community of souls. And when a soul dies, um, those who have already passed away come to them and ask them about the living. So there's sort of a report back about what's <laughs> happening. <laughs> so, you know, it's, we're, it's, we're always encouraged to remember all that we, all those that we love and that have passed always as much as we can, even in a thought, in a moment when we're driving at any moment, anytime it comes to our mind to, to say a prayer for them and that it counts and that they hear it. So let's talk about that too, because I wanted to talk to you about what happens after again in your in the islamic tradition um is there i mean in some traditions you know in buddhist traditions especially tibetan you know there's this whole process in uh some aspects of christianity in some parts of roman catholicism there are different stages you know you go through after you die um depending on how you lived your life etc um what is what does your tradition say happens after we uh 
cease to be in our body? Well, again, I just want to preface that I'm not a, a, an Islamic scholar, so I'll just no, I'll just speak from my own um, understanding. And that the first thing is that um, you know when your soul is taken, the angel of death comes and takes your soul, and that um, as soon as you are in your grave, when the when everyone's gone, and and we're told that you know they can hear the footsteps of people leaving, and you know, and then the angel of death asks them about about their life and who they believe in. And, you know, who was your God and who was your messenger? And those are questions that are asked of you. And, um, and if you are able to answer, then your waiting time is of peace. And then if you, are, if you are a sinner, then there are, you know, we're told that there are ramifications of that during your time in your grave as well. Yeah, so that's, that's the, I guess, most common understanding. And so the best case scenario, is there a heaven and a hell then, essentially? I mean, is there yes. punishment? Is there reward? I, there is life. punishment mm -hmm. and reward. Mm -hmm. But to me, when I read the Quran, um, God tells us first that he's merciful. So we, we are told about uh, that there is punishment and there is reward and there is um, uh, penance to pay. But also that we are so unaware of God's mercy and, how, and, and the greatness of it and the magnitude of it. And that we should always place our faith in God's mercy. Yeah. And I, I beg to differ with you a little bit, because I think you may not be an Islamic scholar, but you are certainly an articulate exponent oh, of, of Islam. Um, so, so in this time of COVID, um, and you know, uh, as you're hearing from from people in the mosque and in your community, um, what what are the needs, and how are those needs being being met? Um, um, yeah, I mean, I think. Uh, you know, the community is no different from other communities. And I have read about uh, beautiful stories about Muslims stepping up and, you know, doing grocery shopping for their neighbors and making sure they're available. Um, so, you know, that kind of stuff, that kind of uh, mutual aid work is being done. But I also ran into a story that I saw on, uh, I think it was City TV, where, um, and it was predominantly Muslims that were featured, which made me so happy. Of course, it's not just Muslims, but it was in... Um, was it Thorncliffe area where they were organizing a rent strike? And um, there was a woman in Niqab that was interviewed and they were organizing with their whole building about how they were not able to pay rent and they needed to keep their money for food. And that was really incredible and to me, extremely brave. So it was, it was you know, I think it's beautiful to see the solidarity and the movement building happening across faiths and across people. Uh, and that, that's a positive thing that's come out, I guess, of this. Um, yeah. And, and talking about, to go back to the, the death topic, and, and absolutely, rent strikes are happening and should be happening everywhere. Um, in Long-term care has proven to be the mm -hmm. disaster of all disasters in this province and across this country. Um, I mean, there's a lot of obviously structural reasons for that. We haven't put money into it for decades. Uh, it's been privatized, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in your community, um, what does long-term care look like? As some people have described it, the waiting room, <laughs> the waiting room for death. Mm -hmm. uh, but in long-term care or palliative care, what does that look like in the Islamic tradition? And, and how have you been impacted by, by the horror of what's happening in our long-term care homes? Yeah, I mean, I think for us, that it, it, there is a cultural 
aspect of, you know, caring for your elders when you can, having them in your home. So, you know, I grew up with, my grandmother didn't live here, but we grew up in a culture where your parents do live with you. You you know, you take care, care of your parents. And I know that that's not always possible. So this is not to like guilt anybody, but I think there is an element of capitalism that has made uh, seniors disposable and no longer, um, you know, respected or needed by society. And when people are able to care for their elders, they, they sort of want them out of the way, which is so heartbreaking. And again, I do want to say, I know this is not always the case because there are some illnesses and, and conditions that have serious medical needs. And I, I would never expect a family to be able to take that on, especially when they can't afford, you know, help inside the house. So that happens too. Um, but I think it's an opportunity for us to reevaluate how we respond to things and how much we're willing to give. Um, and structurally, of course, like the governments that we put in place that have privatized these places. And, you know, we know when privatization comes and care goes down. And that's something that we have to be responsible for, too. Um, we, I recently have a family, not a family member. She's actually the first friend my parents made when they moved to Canada. She lived um, in a building with us. She's a Chinese Muslim. And it just turned out they had they were neighbors in a, in a, in a building in Etobicoke. Um, and her husband passed away. My dad passed away uh, about 20 years ago, and her husband passed away a few years after that. And uh, so she's been kind of on her own. She lost her son when he was very young. So anyway, we st- I, I just call her auntie, even though we're not <laughs> flood related. And she's, you know, she's been dealing with illnesses. And recently she had a, I think she had fallen asleep at the wheel and had a bad car accident. Fortunately, nobody else was injured, but she was, um, you know, she was recovering in hospital during COVID. And during her time there, um, during that time they had cut off visitors. So we had gone in for the first few days and it was just at the peak where they said, sorry, we're not going to be allowed to have visitors either. Um, So my mom at that point was just in communication during phone calls. And of course it was quite upsetting for her. And she was, she was now in a position to be moved into long-term care. Um, And now we didn't know what to do, like how we should sort of um, advocate for her uh, because she's relatively on her own. And now she has moved in with my mom. (laughs) And she's, yeah. And she's, she's living with my mom for now the last two weeks. Um, And my mom's a senior too. So it's definitely a challenge. And um, my mom has my, one of my sisters living with her. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I think, I don't know that I'd be able to do that. Like I sort of reevaluated myself and my, I think my, my parents are of a very different generation of sacrifice and giving and, you know, community work is really community work. This is what you do. If someone needs to come into your home, that's what you do. You don't pay someone to take care of them. And I just think that that's a type of thinking that we've been so removed from. And maybe this is a time for us to reevaluate. And, and I speak to myself first, you know, um, am I, am I willing to give up a room? If there was someone who needed somebody, how much am I willing to give up? And at this point, like we talked, we talked about this before Sherry about, you know, having economic privilege and, you know, making sure that we're donating as much as we can and supporting as much as we can, but also um, beyond that, we really, this is a crisis situation and people are really struggling and how much are we willing to give beyond just, you know, writing a check or, or uh, putting our credit card onto an online platform. So I've been thinking about that recently, and I and I hope our community is doing that kind of work. It's hard to know because um, I hear stories, and I'm on several WhatsApp groups, maybe too many. <laughs> so I do hear about um, supports that are happening, but I, 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 my guess is all these stories will come out later, and uh, hopefully they'll they'll really be beautiful.
Yeah, no, I was wondering because, you know, there are uh, quite a number of long-term care homes that are kind of ethnically specific. Let's say they're a okay. long-term care home or Chinese long-term care home, uh, retirement homes. And I was just wondering, I had not heard of anything that was specifically Muslim um, mm-hmm. and was wondering about that. Is that um, because it wasn't needed or... What was, yeah, what I, was happening? That's interesting. I don't actually know, but I do know, uh, I don't, yeah, there, I'm, there must be. I'm guessing there must be, and I'm not as, I'm not connected to them. But I know we do have seniors that come on their own to our mosque on a regular basis. And, uh, you know, our, our imam has asked people to check in on them, making sure that they're okay. I don't believe they're in long-term care homes, but there's, mm-hmm. there's a group of five or six women that come every Friday. And um, maybe one of them drives, maybe they Uber. I'm not even sure how they get there. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, I know our mom has been like, has anybody checked in on them? You know, can we make sure that they're okay? And I, I imagine that's happening in mosques everywhere, but, uh, in terms of an actual, uh, facility that's Muslim specific, I, I'm not sure. Yeah. But you make such an excellent point. I mean, it is something that has been lost. Um, uh, and certainly, um, this idea that, that we place seniors in residences rather than, maybe getting the supports that we need to have them in our own homes has, has, all, has been part of everybody's really ethnic tradition from Europe or wherever they came from. That was always the tradition. This is a relatively recent reality. And of course, not to guilt anybody, some people do need round the clock care and it's difficult and, or sometimes impossible to be able to provide that. Um, but the, the idea that, um, that it's not possible at all is, has kind of been lost to us. So mm-hmm. maybe that's, that maybe the reboot of our culture, that's something that we can gain back after this mm-hmm. is over. And well, then, mm-hmm. go ahead. Uh, or even, even the idea of living together. Cause I remember when I was younger, there were a lot of South Asian families that would often live multiple household families in a household in one home. Mm-hmm. And I remember they were, um, really sort of comments about like how many people live there why do they why can't they you know why can't they all live separately and I remember a few years ago reading an article in the star because of the housing crisis and how expensive it was to live there was this great new idea called intergenerational living and <laughs> yes, maybe, you know, I saw that too I laughed yeah. at that as well but I mean <laughs> and where you feel this I mean I guess we're talking about the end of life we should also maybe you know end this discussion with the beginning of life because where I really felt the need for another generation and sadly didn't have it because my parents had passed on and my in-laws were in another country um, was when I had a baby you know like that's when you really get that you need a lot of help it does take a village and and, you know then you get oh well I don't have any other person to hand this child off to you know (laughs) right oh so it is both necessary at the beginning and end of life well thank you so much because it's been a delight to talk to you as always Do, what do we say? Happy Ramadan is over. All of them are great. <laughs> Ramadan Mubarak, Ramadan Supreme, Happy Ramadan. They're all okay. they're all equally wonderful. Okay, <laughs> wonderful. Well, have a wonderful fast and Thank you. and and hopefully um, a time of wonderful introspection too. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show, a second part. And of course, uh, we are recording this remotely. We are not in the radio station like so many others. 
and uh, hope you're all well out there in listener land. Please send me your comments. I love to hear from you. Still on Twitter, still on Facebook, at Sherry DeNovo, at C-H-E-R-I-D-I-N-O-V-O. And today, as you know, it's the faith panel. Um, and certainly a uh, time like this calls for some. Um, I'm delighted to have Annie Matan back. Um, our, uh, she's both uh, spiritual and Jewish. Um, not that there's <laughs> any difference between the two. Um, uh, Annie, welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you so much. Uh, it's good to be here. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about these conversations and I'm really glad they're continuing to happen, especially during this time. Absolutely. And just uh, so you know out there in uh, listener land that, that they are, of course, broadcast live Mondays, which is where you're probably hearing it on the radio station itself, CIUT 89.5 FM, from 4 to 5. But you can also get it on SoundCloud and on iTunes. So, Annie, uh, let's talk about your life now under COVID-19. I, I think of the Gabriel Garcia Marquez book, uh, you know, Love Under Cholera, while we're, you know, love in the time of COVID-19. Um, you are about to do a funeral. What does that look like? Um, yeah, it's a pretty incredible time. So, superficially... That looks like a Zoom, the funeral will be done on Zoom. And the family uh, are planning to have a public celebration of life once folks can gather in person again. So this ritual is really for them and their close community and loved ones to be able to say goodbye to their loved one who's died and have some closure. Um, because waiting until we can gather is too long. Um, and, so, and perhaps tell people, um, because um, what what does a funeral and funeral preparations look like in the Jewish tradition? Because I think a lot of people who are not familiar with the tradition won't know anything about what happens at all. So maybe take us back to that part too. Okay. Yeah, I, Jewish rituals around death and mourning are brilliant. Jewish traditions around death and mourning and grief are really, really smart. Um, I am so grateful to be part of this tradition. So once someone dies, and in this case, um, you know, this was a, a young woman who died of cancer. It just happened to be in the time of COVID. And um, she died on Tuesday, and I had an opportunity to be with the family remotely, uh, virtually, in her room with her, um, chanting and helping them all ease her transition, which was really amazing. Um, and then once she died, the focus in Jewish tradition goes on the, the honoring of the deceased person as the primary priority uh, right now between her death and her um, returning to the elements, we'll say. So whether a person is being buried or in this case, she's being cremated. And I feel like it's important to raise up. Most people think Jews can't or don't do that. And in fact, I've facilitated funerals and memorials for a number of Jewish folks who chose to be cremated. So it's important to know that that is possible. 
Um, and so focusing on her, so that's like getting all of the information out into the world about what the family is planning to do, when the funeral is happening, the Shiva, which is when, so after the funeral, the idea is that comfort comes to the mourners and the mourners in this case are defined really as the immediate family, her child, her husband, her mother, her sister. Um, and so if we weren't in a time of COVID, one of them probably would host at their home um, gatherings over seven days that include a prayer service, an which really is so that the mourners can say a prayer. Um, it's called the Mourner's Kaddish. And there's actually nothing about death in this prayer. It's all about extolling God. Um, and there are lots of beautiful teachings about the purpose. Some, I think Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach said it was um, when we say it, we're saying it so that the, we're, we're effectively the mouthpiece for the dead person. Other people say that it's helping. The more we say it, the more we help the deceased person sort of shift from the life, from living to whatever is next. Some people call that ascension. For those who don't like to think of it in terms of up, we can just say like become the fabric of, you know, the energy of the greater world or, or whatever that looks like. Um, so the prayer services give an opportunity to say that prayer for their loved one in a quorum, in a minion of 10. Usually that would happen in person, but in our current digital world, that's happening on Zoom. Also, funeral preparations have included lots of conversations. Um, typically, once someone dies, um, a Jewish person is then guarded by someone. Usually, if they're if it's a Jewish funeral home, they actually have staff who do this. They sit with the body and say psalms 24 hours a day until uh, the person is buried, so that the the dead person is never alone. In um, in this case, at this time, that's not it, it's not being done that way. Um, what's happening instead is first the hospital staff were responsible for her body and then the funeral home. Um, and so we've set up, this is amazing, Kohenet Rachel Rose Reed, uh, along with her colleague Lucy, taught an incredible class on Tuesday night in the Kohenet um, virtual temple called Priestessing in the Time of Unraveling. And the topic was about grief and mourning rituals. Um, and they taught us how to invite people to set up a space in your own home to sit vigil with your loved one. So if you can't be with the body, you can create a space, maybe some might call, it might look like a shrine, but a place where you say, in that corner is my loved one, and you decorate it, and you put words, a candle or a dim light, objects um, that help you feel close to them. And uh, and so the, these family members have decided to do that, and they've sent me pictures, and it's really incredible. So they're able to feel present with her, even though they're not in the room with her. And what's happening when you say, what does this look like? One of the things that Rachel, um, Kohenet Rachel Rose Reed, said that I found, and Lucy said that I found incredibly powerful, was that the screen that we are looking at when we gather is just a tool to see each other, right? Like the screen and the mic and the speaker, they're just tools. But when we really get present and in our bodies, 
we can connect much more deeply and more readily with ourselves and each other. So even though this funeral is going to happen tomorrow afternoon on Zoom, I'm really working with the family and will facilitate in such a way as to invite people to be really present with where they are as a means of connecting with each other across time and space. It's quite incredible the opportunity we have right now because people are able to show up from anywhere. Um, so we Which have the power of the, the current situation. And, and yes. Now, yes, just to exactly. backtrack a little bit, um, uh, what happens to the body uh, if we weren't in COVID in Jewish tradition? Oh, if yes. Thank we, yeah. You. So, so talk about that a little bit. Great. So traditionally the goal is, in, in uh, Jewish tradition, we want the person buried within 24 hours. Um, we don't preserve the body in any way. So, I mean, that's really in, in a, in part of the honoring of the body is we don't want them to be decomposing. We want them to be in the ground. Um, and also there's, that's the physical, you know, reason. But also spiritually, it's so difficult to be in limbo as a mourner. Because once the person is buried, the energy shifts from the um, from the deceased person focusing on the honor of the deceased person to focusing on taking care of the mourners. So we really want that to be as short as possible. And in terms of taking care of the body itself, usually the body would be taken into the care of a funeral home and a group of people, Hevra uh, Kedisha, a sacred friendship circle would be brought in to bathe and ritually prepare the body um, for its return to the elements. And um, I should say, because this is the Radical Reverend show, that in Toronto, we now have, so, so traditionally, it was a gendered group. So you would, if it was a woman who had died, a group of women would come and prepare her. If it was a man who died, a group of men would come and prepare him. And in the past, um, there were issues when a person was trans, um, the traditional community didn't know what to do with that. If they had lived their life as a woman but were physically a male, um, this language is not uh, if this language is not the right language. You know what I'm saying? Like mm -hmm. if their body parts didn't match their um, lived gender, then the traditional community was struggling with that. But in Toronto, we now have a queer Hebra Kadisha who um, is called in specifically to support trans and gender queer folks. And so they would come, and now, of course, in the time of COVID, that ritual bathing is not a safe thing. Like, we can't do social distancing. Um, there's not an, yeah, you'd be, like, pouring water, and it's a joint task. It's just um, not safe and appropriate at this time. So my understanding is other measures are being taken. Um, and for this person that that uh, whose family I'm supporting, I know that's not happening. And then... Um, they would be placed in a, a simple cloth. Um, sometimes people choose to put their family members in an outfit, a particular outfit. Usually they're also wrapped in a white garment. And then um, uh, when I want to say traditionally, and then say like, there are lots of new traditions, that a casket for a Jewish funeral is usually very simple because the idea is that nothing should be left behind that doesn't completely return to the earth, completely decompose. <clears throat> um, so that's what you would see. Uh, I don't know what other word to use besides traditional in this moment, mm -hmm. but that's the, the traditional custom. Quickly simply 
um, humbly get the person in the ground and the focus uh, the word for funeral in Hebrew is levaya, which comes from the root to mean that means to accompany. So we're accompanying the dead person to their next phase, which starts with I mean death and then being buried, and then we're accompanying the mourners in through the process of mourning, and then eventually after the seven days. So for those seven days, when they're receiving visitors, and the idea of receiving visitors is just that people come and bring comfort to them instead of them having to go out and um, and be in the world. And at the end of those seven days, they get up and have to start living again in a very gentle way. After seven days, they're still you're still in the first 30 days, which is called shloshin. So you're not going to hear live music. You're not going to parties or weddings. And I really like to think about that as you don't want to put yourself anywhere where you have to pretend to be okay when really you you need an opportunity to be not okay and not have that conversation over and over again. So for those first 30 days when things are still so sensitive, you're encouraged to just be with your grief and take care of yourself and be gentle with yourself as much as possible. Um, folks usually go back to work after the first seven and do less social extracurricular stuff for the first 30. And then until the 11 month mark, um, they're saying every day, saying this prayer of mourning, um, the mourner's Kaddish, prayer for the mourners. Um, and then usually if there's going to be a gravestone, that would happen between the 11 month and the one year mark. And there's a ritual called an unveiling where friends and family gather at the grave and they actually uncover the gravestone and have a, another sort of memorial marker for the person who's died. Uh, and then they're done saying this morning prayer every day and any other restrictions they were carrying um, about maintaining that extra gentleness would be lifted at the end of the 11 months to 12 months mark. Uh, speaking to um, Annie Matan, who's a Jewish priestess, spiritual leader uh, here on the Radical Reverend Show, if you've just tuned in. And Annie, thank you so much for that. That is a very beautiful walk through, a very beautiful tradition around uh, the passage of death. Uh, now let's fast forward to what you're doing now. You had talked about, so in, in, sitting, in uh, sitting Shiva for that time, what does that look like just on Zoom? I mean, what people are kind yeah. of... It, it, it doesn't happen a certain time. I mean, obviously over seven days, it's a little bit more complicated. So, so describe a little bit of what's going on now um, with the, the, the funeral that you're facilitating. Right. So this funeral is going to happen tomorrow. And the Shiva actually will start on Sunday after the Sabbath. Um, and this, so in the time of Zoom, there's a range of things that I've heard about that are happening. Some families are setting times when um, people just show up and be on Zoom together and schmooze, um, and it's very informal. And um, others are doing, what, what this family is doing is they've set the time for the minion, the prayer service, and that's the only time they want to be inviting folks into their space. Um, so we're having a Zoom call at the same time of day every day for the seven days except Shabbat because they'll be joining um, other Shabbat prayer experiences in this case. Uh, yeah, other Shabbat prayer experiences. Um, so every day at the same time they, and they will in this this family is going to invite the people that they want that they feel comfortable having show up now. 
in a not COVID time when somebody's hosting in their home, really anybody might come. And in a group, you would usually have like people who are very close to you. And it's the responsibility of the family members who are not the ones closest to the deceased person. So like um, the, the spouse of a mourner, for example, or a child of a mourner um, would sort of run interference and make sure that the mourners don't have to greet anyone, make any make any food, lead conversations, um, you know, fend off any awkward social stuff. Um, and because the folks who are dealing with loss right now are mostly alone or in much smaller units, it's great. I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased to see people making good choices to support themselves around you know, it's like, well, if I just leave a Zoom room open, anybody might show up and then I have to deal with that. And I don't have anyone else here to, to do that. Now, one could designate someone to be their company in the Zoom space um, to handle that, but it's so complicated with the technology. So I think this family's choice to just keep it to a one hour, or actually I think she said even 30 minutes a day, just a prayer service and a little bit of time to tell stories about the deceased person. It's a, it's a smart choice based on their own comfort and needs. And I, we talked a little bit last time about how, right, how we, were, we were talking about Passover and Easter and how things are really getting distilled into the core intentions when you can't do all of the ritual things together with all of the tools and props and symbols um, tangibly then you really focus in on what is needed here. And I think that that is a real gift of this time. For sure, we're also having to deal with the loss of the way we imagine things are going to happen. Um, you know, this particular person was sick, acutely ill for the last four months. And, you know, her, her family had planned this beautiful public celebration of life. And they're now having to deal with the loss of that experience, or at least the delay of it on top of the loss of their loved one. And that's just, that's a reality anyway with funerals is like with any life cycle transition, actually nothing ever goes exactly according to plan. But right now we're, there's like layers of extra loss piled on. And that's just part of what we're holding at this time and in the experience of this time. Yes, uh, uh, it's a whole other way of doing death that um, we, none of us, uh, could foresee. Um, Annie, since we're talking about death, and um, it's, a f and it's fascinating, um, and of course there's a lot of it right now uh, in our world and on our news pages, uh, let's talk also uh, about if we made the theology of death coming out of the Jewish tradition. Um, is there an afterlife? Do people go to heaven or hell? Or what, what does it look like um, for the person deceased? What, what, what's the, so perhaps you can, I, I know to... there's no one theology, <laughs> there's no one Judaism, but, yeah. but, uh, but maybe give us just a sense of, of, again, traditional and perhaps other. So I would refer folks to an incredible teacher and scholar about this issue, Rabbi Simcha Raphael. Um, maybe I'll send you his name and info so you can include it in the show notes. This is his area of specialty, Judaism and the afterlife, Judaism and, and what happens after death. Um, 
I, so we don't, Judaism doesn't have a, a, a the same like Christian theology of heaven and hell. Um, there is this sense of a world beyond this one. Um, and also I think as those of us, who, you know, from the perspective of the living, it feels helpful to think about ancestors and how we connect to those who have died. So we don't really know what it's like to be dead because we're still here. We can only theorize. Um, but our tradition shows us a lot about opportunities to connect to those who have died. And I think that gives us an insight from the other side, from the other side of the equation. So we mark um, the anniversaries of our loved one's deaths with a, with a candle. And we also, on major holidays, especially pilgrimage festivals like Passover, um, and also on Yom Kippur, uh, oh gosh, when do we say Yizkor? There are a number of holidays when we add into the liturgy uh, a, a, a service for remembering. And we make space there to remember our loved ones who've died. Now, you know, I'm a priestess and a bit witchy, and I've noticed that um, many of those times coincide with times when other earth-based traditions are acknowledging a thinning of the veil between the living and the dead. And I don't think that's accidental. I feel like Judaism has built in these remembering services so that we can feel more connected to our dead relatives, beloveds, um, when we're having intense spiritual experiences, we're like bringing in, inviting in that thinning of the veil opportunity. So that means that Judaism says we can connect to our loved ones even after they've died. So they're not disappearing forever. Um, it's not, you know, they don't just go into the earth. Their body returns to the earth. Our bodies are the dust to dust, ashes to ashes. But there's some part of our spirit that continues on um, and is accessible to us. We can feel and connect and pray with and pray to um, ask for guidance and guardianship. And there is, um, there, there are prayers and traditions related to that process of, of connecting again and again with our loved ones who've died. We say their names very, that's very important. We say their names, we invoke them at special holidays and moments and life cycle events. Um, so I, I think for me, uh, having been a, have, being a spiritual leader and weaving many holiday Sabbath and life cycle rituals that I feel like it's so telling, our view of death is so telling in the way we connect to those who have died um, in the moments when we are connecting to being most alive. Now, you had mentioned um, the overlap with some earth-based traditions and times of years, uh, times of the year. What, give us an example of that maybe uh, where, um, you know, the, the veil is thinning between the dead and the living. And again, I'm speaking to Annie Matan, priestess and Jewish uh, spiritual leader um, about this. Uh, it, maybe give us an example of that. So last fall, I really noticed, because I, I work with um, 
I have, I have the benefit of being colleagues with an amazing woman, Monica Leilani, who's studying to be an Avalonian priestess. And she's, so she is very tuned into the wheel of the year from earth based, uh, from, from pagan, uh, perspective. And, um, I lead a, a monthly new moon gathering for women, a red, a red tent circle. And she's a regular there and she always has such helpful perspective from her earth-based learning. Um, so I really noticed last fall between, uh, so Yom Kippur, uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur last year were in September and it was pretty close to the fall equinox. And I learned from her, I think, that between the fall equinox and the winter solstice, Halloween falls right in between there. Um, and so we have Halloween on October 31st. Um, our friends in Mexico are celebrating Dio de las Muertas on November 1st. And I have a, a good friend who's Jewish and Mexican who, you know, invited my, me and my daughter. And we went and we went actually to Witchwood Barnes and celebrated Dio de las Muertas um, at that time. And I just noticed, I was like, oh, we just did Yizkor on Yom Kippur. And now we're doing all of these, these um, holidays that relate to uh, like other traditions are having all these holidays around the same time, which is sort of right in the middle between um, what, if it's fall equinox and winter solstice, it's also between Yom Kippur and so Yom Kippur Sukkot time in the fall and Hanukkah, um, which falls around the solstice. And so there's, there's really a sense in the, from what I learned from Monica and that really resonated with me is that whole time of year, that late fall going into winter, lots of um, ancestral, like ancestral connecting traditions. And um, so I started a channeling practice around that time, actually. And um, it was a very, very potent time. Uh, not to mention that Halloween for secular listeners happens around then too. Um, right. No, exactly. You know, but Halloween is Halloween is the secular evolution of Hallow's Eve, which was mm -hmm. a thinning of the veil moment. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Speaking to Annie Matan, priestess, as a Jewish spiritual leader here, about uh, traditions that come out of Judaism around death and how that's shifting um, right now because we're living in a pandemic and we can't be close to each other. Um, and you're about to perform this funeral and lots of prayer and love around you doing that. Um, it's not easy. So uh, we just have a few minutes left, Annie, but I want to talk about the effect on you as a spiritual leader when you, uh, because um, we are all of us spiritual leaders from our own traditions, um, when you're asked to officiate um, in COVID, not in COVID, you know, what does that mean to you? What, what, uh, and, and again, you may not know this person well, certainly not as well as those who love them. Um, but, you know, what, what does it bring out in you? How do you do it? People ask me all the time, how do you do that? Whew. Um, this is such great timing for this conversation. So this, the person who died is the daughter of a friend of mine. Um, I'm very close. So, so my friend, um, I'm very close with her. She's basically a, a member of my, of my family, you know, she's chosen family. And um, so it's really affected me, um, her daughter's illness and now death. I, when I, you know, when I first heard, it was really hard for me to keep it together. And meaning not cry, right? Because I'm feeling 
I think as an empath as well, and, and when we, you know, when we do this work, often we're, we're tuning in to the experiences and the feelings of those that we are supporting. So I know that I'm feeling their grief, and also I'm just feeling so sad for my friend. And at the same time, my training and my, pers- my particular gifts have really equipped me to show up and offer support and hold my friend and her family through this experience. And yesterday is such is a great example. I I feel like I barely had time to breathe. Um, I was speaking with my friend, um, her other daughter, uh, who's the sister of the deceased person, the husband of the person who died, the funeral home. They're communicating with the crematorium, and I'm I'm having to wait. Like we're bouncing back and forth between communication. Plus, I was coordinating food and Jewish ritual object deliveries for all of these people who live in different places um, and being, you know, briefly while I was setting up and delegating to other people um, so that I don't have to both be a spiritual guide and facilitator and handle all the logistics. I managed, I I was really pleased that I managed to delegate those pieces, but I'm the one on the ground setting them up. Um, And I have an incredible support person who's another good friend um, of my friend. And so we've been checking in regularly throughout the day, keeping each other apprised, making sure communication is happening. And there's the other Jewish community in Toronto that that my friend has been a member of, and they were checking in with us to say, what can we do? Do you have information to share with our community about how they can show up? Um, so all of that was happening. And I feel like it's really important to say we have lives too, we spiritual leaders. You know, I have a four-year-old and I um, am also, I, my marriage ended in September and I'm navigating co-parenting in two, from two households in a pandemic already. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yesterday was really, the last few days were really challenging for me because I'm trying to figure out and weave in and out how to be with my kid. Um, and in fact, today I had to, re- I just, I FaceTimed with her and had to reschedule. because so I was like, I can't spend five hours with her today and do all of this. Um, and the, like, that's a whole other conversation, like the impact of COVID on families and separated families. It's been extremely challenging. So yesterday, I just kept thinking, I was getting such beautiful messages from the family I was supporting, letting me know, they were saying, thank you so much. This is exactly what we need at exactly the right time. And you know, I'm human. So those things really help. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not necessary, but they really help. Um, And I was maxed out by the end of the day, I was Mm -hmm. so fried. And I just thought, I love this work so much. I'm so grateful to get to be here with these people through this time. And it is a lot. Both of these things are true. Amen, sister. I I was listening and I'm nodding here and I'm saying, I, you know, this is where spirituality and faith comes together across various traditions. Thank you so much, Annie Matan. Get some rest. Lots of prayer and love and light around you tomorrow. And thank you for talking about death, the topic we never talk enough about on the Radical Reverend Show. Till next time. You're so welcome. Bye. Thank you. Bye.